walking in a country road And I've been chasing after my shadow Hey everybody, it's the Camino Podcast. I'm Dave Whitson, back with episode 12 after a longer delay than I would have liked. Sorry for that. It's uh, a very busy time of year at work, and uh, it's been a struggle to schedule interviews, get everything set up, and be ready to go. So don't want to sacrifice quality, don't want to rush it, want to make sure that you know uh, an episode is, is complete and ready to go before I push it online. So thanks for your patience. Today's episode focuses on two academics, and it's like the two parts of myself. Uh, you know, my, uh, my background, I have a double major in history and comparative literature, and uh, I've been both an English and a history teacher over the course of my career. And so I'm very pleased today to be joined by an English professor and a history professor. The first guest is Brian Bouldry. He's an English professor from Northwestern University, and he just happens to be the keynote speaker at this year's national gathering of the American Pilgrims on the Camino. So I asked Brian to come on and, you know, give us a sneak preview of what's coming at the national gathering this year. And if you aren't familiar with the National Gathering, it's an annual event hosted by the American Pilgrims on the Camino. It takes place early in April, so the gathering itself is April 7th through 10th, and it's in Belleville, Illinois. So you can still register, so if you find yourself with some open time in early April, it's a possibility. And you can visit the AmericanPilgrims.org website for more information on that and you know, after you listen to Brian talk, you may be all the more motivated to make a trip to Illinois. After Brian, uh, I'm joined by Matthew Kiefler, who's a history professor from San Diego State University. And I found Matt when I was trying to look up some information on Osobrero. And Matt's a medieval historian, and he's done some digging into the medieval roots of Osobrero. And uh, I speak with him about that. So those are the two uh, major parts of today's episode. I want to briefly pass along a note. I'm hoping to put together a series of interviews with pilgrims that are essentially a rewalking of the Camino Frances. So my hope is to speak with a bunch of different people and cover maybe three stages of the route with each person and just talk through the experience, passing through the villages along the way, reflecting on the places that you stopped, the sites that you checked out, the food that you ate, the albergues you slept in. And so over the course of all of those different interviews with 10, 11, 12 different people, um, really walk every step of the way from Saint-Jean on through to Santiago and maybe on to Finisterre for good measure. So if you're interested in being a part of it, be sure to write me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com. All right, with that out of the way, we'll transition to uh, our first interview. So stay tuned, and thanks for listening. Brian Bouldry is a senior lecturer in Northwestern's English department. His works include Traveling Souls, a contemporary pilgrimage story collection, and Honorable Bandit, a walk across Corsica, and he's this year's keynote speaker at the American Pilgrims on the Camino National Gathering. Thanks for talking with me, Brian. Thank you for having me, Dave. It's uh, it's great to talk with you. And I'm curious, 
uh, about your pilgrimage background. What got you into the idea of pilgrimage in the first place? Well, I had a, a really good friend that I was doing a lot of traveling with in the early 90s, and he was a bicyclist. And I, I you know, I just, I, I, got, I had a bad scene on a bike. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> really, it comes down to that. And I realized I'm best meant and I and I'm a terrible driver and so I'm best meant on foot I just I'm a donkey I can I can walk forever and I I, I always could I think mm-hmm. and so I started looking into ways to that and and you know having been raised Catholic um, I had known a little bit about the history of the Camino mm-hmm. and, uh, and and but it's also a compromise I was this friend wanted to bicycle the Camino and I said well why don't you you know why don't I get a head start and then we'll meet at the end and we'll do some traveling afterwards and of course what i didn't expect to happen was that by the end i had picked up so many new friends along the camino that uh, you know that mm-hmm. i sort of you know i was forced to leave at the <laughs> end uh, to go with my bicycling friend we mm-hmm. worked it out but uh you know and and it's just um I, you know it's just my i it's per it's perfect for me and not just spiritually and not just um physically but also just it just the history and the and and the way people you know and just getting to know real distances and real people along mm-hmm. I, everything but i think a lot of people go for uh, seek on the camino um you know authenticity of some sort and that can be a lot of different things mm-hmm. I was struck in looking through your your contemporary pilgrimage stories collection that you you have a pretty elastic definition of pilgrimage or the types of pilgrimage sites and walks that you include in that collection. So how do you define pilgrimage? Well, that's um, and that's interesting because I have another book of collection coming out that actually because that traveling souls, which um, has several things that like things like Malcolm X going to Mecca or uh, Zora Neale Hurston's. Uh, it's actually Alice Walker looking for Zora. Looking for Zora is the name of the piece that I would even argue is the first you know, for personal pilgrim essay, because she's looking for the grave of, of Zora Neale Hurston, the, the writer uh, Zora Neale Hurston, and, and comes across this completely weeded up gravestone, and she has turned that into a pilgrimage site. She she was the first one, and she cleaned it up. She Now it's a, it's a, it's a place that people go who are great aficionados of African-American literature, you know, and so... I, I sort of got the idea from that. And in fact, I had included looking for Zora in the traveling souls book. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so I'm borrowing from her definitely like sort of this thing where I think everybody, the new book, by the way, that I've got coming out in the mm-hmm. fall is it's a, it's a collection by writers and it's be called um, uh, the inspired muse. And it's, and then there's like a subtitle. I'm sorry, because we just decided what the title <laughs> was. And the, the inspired muse, colon um tra- travel writers uh chase you know the muse or something i can't yeah. remember but it's good <laughs> you know those all those magic words are in there you yep. know travel inspire muse uh, you know uh, pilgrimage and um and it's really it comes down to for me the difference between religious and spiritual and that can you know that can sound a little bit you know, frou but i think i once heard somebody say Religion is for people who don't want to go to hell, and spirituality is for those who've already been. 
And so um, so many, and while I did not tell that to the people I commissioned to write the, the pieces for this new book, certainly that that would fit for everyone who the, the, the stories in the new book and and the old one and the, and the travel the traveling souls book i mean so many of those people are looking for a new life i think is what it is mm. when when you are on pilgrimage what qualifies you as a pilgrim wow um i that's a curious question because i <laughs> you know I, it's trying i think it is trying to make it um, make a, a foreign place in some kind of way, an unofficial or even official home, like sort mm-hmm. of claiming it. I, I had walked uh, a couple of years ago around um, Northern Ireland on the Ulster way, mm-hmm. which is about the same distance, I think as the, as the pilgrimage say from, from St. John Pierre de Poor. And um, I'm, I'm Irish by, you know, mostly Irish in my, in my family. Um, and I watch myself as having just nearly traveled everywhere in the world avoiding Ireland in some way. And so when I got there and I was just going to just, I just wanted some kind of long distance walking. I really wasn't seeing it as a pilgrimage, but being there, it was, those were my people for better mm-hmm. and for worse. I just go, Oh my God, these are, these. <laughs> I, I get these people. I, even the people I don't like, I understand them. You know, mm-hmm. It's just kind of this. Um, and so it was, it was, de- it's definitely this kind of, finding home, go finding home in the place that's not home maybe i mm. yeah i i think that that's that's how i would i i think there's a lot of ways i i think I, you know a lot of religious people might sort of uh, poo poo that but i i think that there's a lot of there are places that in the world where that that seems sacred and that can be for any if you if you look at i you know if you come driving through wyoming and you come across devil's tower mm. you immediately go oh I see why the Native Americans might have seen this as a sacred place. I mean, mm-hmm. you just know that, right? And it's just that kind of thing. This is a sacred thing, or, or, or you know, or you know, hanging rock or something like that. But there's something. There are places that are, for, for maybe not for everybody, but for somebody, mm-hmm. a, a sacredness to it, or, or you know, yeah, yeah, and, and a place where a lot of people who understand that will come together is. In uh, in Illinois, in uh, just a, a little over a month from now, at the national gathering for the American Pilgrims on the Camino, where, as I said, you're the keynote speaker this year. So, congratulations on that! And thank you. How did you yeah. How did you get connected to the Well, the it's, gathering? A, it's a mystery to me. Actually, <laughs> uh, the, the the organizer uh, is a wonderful person who who I I, I think uh, somebody might have spoken well of me, which is is weird. <laughs> And I had, and uh, I had been working on this new book, I think. Um, and it has been just, it's just, it has always been a passion of me, the, the pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, uh, and I've spoken more or less on travel uh, before. Um, but I, I honestly uh, don't know. I'm completely honored and I'm really excited about it. I really think it's going to be interesting just to, to be around uh, some future pilgrims. Yeah. The before we started recording, you and I were talking about uh, our early experiences on the Camino and and running into very few Americans. And of course, the dynamic has changed significantly over the last two decades. There's a rapidly increasing interest of Americans on pilgrimage, and the national gathering will be a good example of that. So I'm I'm wondering, given your perspective and expertise on on pilgrimage, do you think 
Americans in particular have a distinct need or uh, interest in pilgrimage? Is there something that makes the American draw to pilgrimage different from that of other nationalities? Um, I, I would not want to turn anecdote into data, but can I use my own example? Yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, I, I think I think that's a great question. And I, I've been teaching uh, literature in the environment class, and I've, in order to kind of winnow down um, the subject, because there's so much environment, you know, nature in, in writing in mm-hmm. general, I kind of gave it the sub-theme of living in nature. And so we're looking at, you know, Thoreau's Walden, and we're looking at Robinson Crusoe, and even, you know, Kipling's The Jungle Books and things like that. And and when you read European it talks I mean, when I my my lovely old pilgrim friend Petra. She's not old. She's still friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Petra is from Dusseldorf in Germany, uh, and and Europe is so full of history. And when she goes, when she and her husband went on um, the pilgrimage, um, she wanted to get out of town. She wanted to get out of and into nature. She was a woman who was always picking all the berries if there was any along the pilgrim, you know, along mm-hmm. the Camino. And, and I, and because our, I think our culture, American culture loves to see it as this kind of living in innocent nature. You know, it's like mm-hmm. we, we just, we, we live in nature. And as I think it was, um, uh, uh, Hegel says, I want to, I hope I'm saying this right, but I think it's Hegel who said, you can't live in nature. You live in history. I think mm. Europeans do that. And I think in a certain way, my desire to go, when I go on the pilgrimage is to actually be part of history rather than it, it, it's a weird, like I, mm-hmm. I, I'm getting it both ways in a certain way. Um, so that you can be, you can get that that American hit of America, you know, of, of nature and, mm-hmm. and environment and also get culture, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and in history. I think that's always been the, what draws me to walking on pilgrimage routes instead of say the PCT or other wilderness trails in the U S this idea that, um, you're, you're walking through beautiful scenery, but then you are also deliberately seeking out civilization, history, um, as part of the experience. So there's, there, there's that constant, uh, contrast between the two. Yeah. Well, some of my favorite photographs from my, from my you know, pilgrimages are, you know, a, a shot of the Meseta, you know, with that, mm-hmm. kind of that, that dried grass and then a, 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 a bell tower from a church, just the only thing jutting up over the hill. Kind yeah. of thing. You know, so you got, that, that that's that, that's beautiful to me. Yeah, that moment of Calza Dia de la Cueza's church tower suddenly breaking the horizon after seventeen kilometers of uh, of, of almost nothing. So uh, yeah, of, of, including <laughs> no shade. Yes, <laughs> um, but I love the Meseta. I really do. Yeah, yeah. The descent. In the, it's the, I. I, I feel like that first day from Burgos to Ontanas, you know, when, when that the village of Ontanas finally appears below you, it's just, it's oh, a pretty yes. magical stretch. It really is. I know exactly where you're talking to. <laughs> exactly. I think, in fact, I think of the photograph in my mind, when you were saying, I, when I said, is what you're talking about, is, in your Ant- <laughs> is, is breaking to Ontanas. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I'm interested in the idea of a gathering of pilgrims as something distinct from pilgrimage. So pilgrims flying together to meet in a place to talk about pilgrimage. Um, what do you make of this idea of a, of a gathering of pilgrims? What is it? I mean, I do. I mean, my I'm going to sort of say that 
it would be, I mean, I'm thinking of all the other, you know, uh, associations that, you know, there's, I, I teach in an English department. Can I just say the modern language association? My apologies, my apologies <laughs> to any listeners who are about to bad mouth, but we call modern language association meeting, the, you know, associated meeting of the living dead. I mean, it's just, you know, people delivering the dullest papers in the world on stuff that we're so passionately interested in. I feel like this, 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 this is sort of want, you know, pilgrim, the gathering of pilgrims would be for because you've had this experience and you're just dying to explain it to people. And you, you come home and it's a lot of times it's like, well, I guess you had to be there or mm-hmm. something. I mean, I, you know, you, to, to be around people who really not for, you know, just this frisson we just had about Ontanas. Oh my God. Ontanas, you know, <laughs> I know exactly that place. Um, yeah. I'm hoping that's what the whole weekend is going to be. I do. And my, my, com, my keynote speech is my subject that I've kind of, um, put out there is that in in the past in you know in the vast history of the pilgrimage uh people would walk or ride bikes or or horses to probably not bikes but um to santiago and then they would have to go all the way back home which is you know it doubles the time and doubles Mm. the journey um and it and i would imagine and it's something hard to imagine that it's hard to imagine what what you would think about going back home. I mean, is this, mm. um, and, and I feel like what happens when we get to Santiago now is, you know, you, you grab that plane straight out of Santiago or, or whatever, and you may go to uh, Finisterra, but mm-hmm. a lot of people, I mean, are, yeah, you know, and so this, this is this play, this, what needs to happen is there's, there needs to be some replacement for the long journey home. And I kind of think that learning how to tell the story of it might be the way. And so I am hoping to hear a lot of great stories at this gathering. Mm. It's a good point. I always talk with uh, with my students when we're working our way back to the U.S. that it, it's going to be really difficult talking about this with other people because the depth of experience they just had is not easily translatable. And there's no good answer to the question, you know, how was it <laughs> coming from right. someone right. who has no perspective? <laughs> It truly is. It's really just going. Oh, it's great. <laughs> um, that's really true. Uh, and and so you know, it. I I know that I would love to hear you know your students and anybody just like just a couple of anecdotes and and it, because you also know you know the second they say something like Mancia de las Mulas or yeah. you know uh, Osobrero, I'm going. Oh, and I have this image in my mind of this place. Um, mm. And and so I can just really you know be there with them. I was thinking about your point that uh, you know we we have to sort of manufacture our 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 new a new way to close out pilgrimage since we're no longer walking home, um, and and I was thinking that that applies to the beginning as well. It makes the the beginning feel somewhat arbitrary and the end feel rather abrupt, and um, and, and so maybe both sides of the of the experience have to be better scaffolded to 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 fully um, prepare us to to make meaning out of it. That's a really interesting point. You know, I, 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 you know, my thinking about the beginnings, you know, when I would start, you know, it's, it's so nice that they can carve out, like say, oh, Le Puy, it's that it's the starting point, or oh, you know, Le Bézolet, or it's the starting point. And, but it's really, you know, it's the stuff that happens before even that happens, you know, that kind of, the way you kind of 
dismiss yourself from daily life and pull and realize you're going to go to this place where you're where all the stuff that of all you all of your life is in a backpack you know mm-hmm. and the most important thing is to take care of your feet and you know and get and eat right and sleep well and don't drink too much of that pacharan stuff that great that stuff is crazy <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, and the, and the thing is too, I, I remember back in 96 when I made my first pilgrimage, um, I was, uh, I was getting a couple, they had, then there was just the confraternity of St. James out of the United Kingdom. And I sent away for sort of their annual, well, it's not, they did a quarterly bulletin is what it was. And it was literally, you know, it was, it was still dot matrix, you know, Mm -hmm. printed out and photocopied and I still have them. And I remember getting them about two months before I took off. And one of the issues had a, a sort of semi scholarly essay on the problem with pilgrimage pilgrims returning to daily life. Mm -hmm. Um, just that that there's a psychological thing. And I remember just laughing, like, that sounds stupid, you know? (laughs) And I could not, I just remember, staying in a, in a, some hostel in Santiago and getting up the morning after walking for two months mm-hmm. and just pacing the room going, what am I going to do now? You know, mm-hmm. this kind of, you know, I felt like a bee in a bottle, you know, that was, what, it's done now? What, you know, <laughs> and also the phenomenon of, I don't know if this happened, if anybody out there has had this experience, but I remember walking for, for over a month with several people and, they would be the strongest walkers. They always, you know, we all kept up with each other. We all kind of helped each other out. But coming up on the week before arrival, people's feet especially started falling apart. Yeah. Suddenly people were getting blisters that never got blisters. And like they, there's that your own body is rebelling against finishing it. Mm-hmm. It's kind of fascinating. It's, uh, it's something we talk about a lot with the students that they can be even, it manifests itself on a, on a normal day where, you know, you could be walking 25 kilometers, feeling fine the whole way. Suddenly, you know that there's just one or two kilometers left and everything starts to hurt like crazy. Um, and and then it, it, it expands to an even greater degree at the end of the walk. And it's so much of it is mental, right? It's this mental letdown that when you're in the middle of it, you just know that you have to be focused and attentive but as soon as the end is near your mind starts going elsewhere the focus is broken and and that's when the pain and the injury really seems to to creep in absolutely that is exactly right and that brings me back to your your earlier question about beginnings too i just remember sitting in you know the the gare du nord you know the Mm -hmm. train station in paris and watching one of these kind of floor polishers heading toward me and going if that floor polisher hits me (laughs) i will not be able to walk you know that's kind of that you're kind of getting all is i must take care that's when that's the beginning for me is when you start going i I can't screw this (laughs) up i can't i have to start taking care of it yeah yeah it's a funny thing it, it the the worst beginning I ever had to a pilgrimage is also kind of the best because it was my my first one and i I was taking the train down from from paris i'd flown in um so I got in that morning took the train down had a miserable time of buying train tickets to connect in uh in bordeaux yeah. and you know caught the very last train from bayonne to saint jean pierre de port and and got in there it's like may first and um I stagger into the pilgrim office there's still a bed in the 
um, in the municipal albergue, but it's it's pitch black. So I just oh, sort of stagger over, in the dark. I stagger into the <laughs> albergue in the dark and I collapse. And then I wake up the next morning and it's dark out and I just pick up my backpack and I start walking. I didn't see Saint Jean Pierre de Port at all. Um, oh no! <laughs> but but at the it's same, it's quite beautiful actually. <laughs> it is. It's really nice. Yeah, I've been back. It was uh, it was good to return. But it was it, in some ways it was like this really fantastic start because it was such a clean break, right? Like everything went oh, dark, sure. and then all of a sudden I was on pilgrimage, and um, and so there was something about the the cleanness of that that um, I think really gave me a, a a smooth transition from from normal life to pilgrim life and um it's 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 harder almost when you ha- can ease in and and move in slowly to really get your mind into um into that new identity that is that really that is great actually i you know as much as you probably hated it at the moment it <laughs> was it was brilliant wasn't it yeah yeah the, the climbing in, that's, I had so many just, I just flashed on several experiences, <laughs> getting in late and climbing in the dark and just, you know, and finding out, you you know, you're upside down. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you just hope that the bed you're getting into is actually empty. Um, that's right. <laughs> I, I wonder about, you know, your point about storytelling as, the, as a way of going home, that uh, in an in an era now where everyone can publish a book, where everyone can post their stories online in a dozen different places, is there a risk of of suddenly having too many stories of um, us being so exposed to the pilgrimage experiences of others that it becomes harder for us to craft wow. our own experience? That's. I would like to, I, I really like to think that's a good question. And I would like to just, I'll almost defensively say, no, we can never have <laughs> enough stories. And that, and I do think though, can I just, okay, I'm going to get all touchy feely about this. I feel <laughs> like, you know, my students, when I ask them to do imitations of writers that, you know, that are good so that we, and, and they say, they say, but what about my voice? And I'm sort mm-hmm. of, I'm going to crush your voice. I, I don't say. I mean, I tell them that their voice it can't be, you know, destroyed. It, that it can't, you know, it's there and it's 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 something that needs developing. So I would like to transfer that theory onto this that the, that if you have not gone on the pilgrimage and you start reading other people's stories of the pilgrimage, I, I that they, those will only give open your eyes to more possibility rather than less. I would like to think that. You're, no matter what, no matter how hard you might try to make this not your own pilgrimage, it's gonna be, you know, it's mm-hmm. gonna be so original and 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 somewhat similar but so totally different to my experience, which is great, you know, which is, mm-hmm. and I don't think that that can be. How could that be? Da- I guess it could be. Da- yeah, I, I remember you talking to Rebecca, um, uh, the the Albergue, um operator mm-hmm. um, in in Castile, and and that she was talking about keeping the Camino scruffy, you know, not yeah. not letting it be Disney Disneyfied. That might be a bigger danger to me is that Disneyfication thing, you mm-hmm. know, that in a, cer- a certain way one is better off if if one gets, you know, doesn't see they, there's some signs have like gone missing. Some arrows have gone missing somewhere and you get off the track for a half a day, which you might curse, you know, whoever didn't take care of the signs, but that, that experience, I'd rather have that experience than walking on red, you know, bouncy uh, pavement, um, which I remember going on in 2002. Like, what is this? You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the last 
question that I that I really want to ask is I was interested in the introduction to uh, traveling souls that you identified um, the different kinds of travel literature and the the different features of uh, of travel writing and and I was wondering if you know if you could like what goes into a good pilgrim story a good piece of pilgrimage writing like what are the what are the qualities or what are the characteristics of of a of a really compelling pilgrim narrative um for me um it is this kind of i it's the people for for instance you know i as much as i think it's important that pilgrims find a way to be alone at times while walking and you do you just do you know you just kind of walk ahead of somebody for a little while and you're walking um it's it's this it's this mix of people that that you're walking in space i mean you're walking in a space but you're also walking in time and you're walking in this 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 group of people come together and there's a story that always happens, you know, that, mm-hmm. that I love, that there's always some, that it would never, a story that can never happen again. And, and watching the people, listening to people, you know, it, it might be, if I were to advise, you know, anybody out there who wanted to write the truth, just talk about the people as much as, as the, as the landscape, because mm-hmm. they are the ones making that story the best. And they're usually, that's where a real plot comes out. I mean, they're just, you know, there's, there's just so many great, it is, it's just, it's central casting, you know, (laughs) the kinds of people that you encounter on the pilgrimage. Yeah. What's your next walk, Brian? Um, I have been doing portions of the Jakobsweg, the Austrian and uh, German parts of the Camino. I spent uh, about a week and a half walking along the Danube uh, in Hmm. September and just, Loved it. It's well supported, and um, the people are just you know. And uh, I think I'm going to go back and and do so, another leg of that um, summer, um, this coming summer. Uh, that and I've been wanting to go to the Copper Canyon down in Mexico in oh, Chihuahua. Yeah. Chihuahua. Um, I just, but I can't. I need to find somebody who wants. To, I can't go alone. You know, I just, you know, uh, <laughs> Sinaloa just bums me out. <laughs> awesome. So. How about you? What are you? What's your next? You're, you're going to? Oh, yeah. Tell us. Uh, I'll be. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, my next my next trip will be. Uh, I'm taking students to Rwanda and Uganda in March. Um, that won't That's be a so walking nice. trip. That we'll do a couple of hikes, but uh, it'll be a great experience to get the students uh, a, a, a deep uh, look at where both of those countries are in their current trajectories. And then I'll be back in Spain in um, in late June to. Uh, do updates for my uh, guidebook to the Camino del Norte and Primitivo. So, oh, great. So uh, that's, wonderful. Uh, yeah, great. that's on, on track. Um, and, of course, in April, you will be in uh, Belleville, Illinois, uh, at the 2016 Gathering of Pilgrims. And uh, I imagine people could still uh, register for that if they're so inclined. It's April 7th through 10th. So, uh, you know, why not? You can get out there and hear Brian Boldry talk about uh, about stories and telling your story on your way home and uh, and a whole slate of other uh, exciting activities. So uh, I hope that's a great event for you, Brian, and for everyone else who attends. Yes, and tell everybody if they come, I'll buy them free barbecue. Uh, you just did. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, thanks very much for speaking with me. Thank you, Dave. You went a great podcast.
Matthew Kiefler is a professor of history at San Diego State University, and his specialty is in medieval history. And uh, he joins me now to talk specifically about Osobrero. Thanks for talking with me, Matt. Not at all. Thank you for uh, for asking me about it. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm excited about this. I'm curious, what first drew you to Osobrero? Because you haven't walked the Camino, so so what what about it got your attention? Well, it happened kind of by accident. In fact, um, I was in Lugo, which is kind of the the district uh, capital, mm-hmm. um, not far away, doing research in the archives um, on a book that I was writing. Um, and on a French saint, and hmm. uh, interested in the spread of devotion to this saint uh, along the Camino de Santiago. And uh, in the archives, I found lots of mentions of Osobrero, and so I decided to uh, go and visit it for myself mm-hmm. and see what I could see. And uh, I became intrigued by the legends surrounding it, and uh, let's face it, it's an amazingly uh, uh, charming village. Yeah, absolutely. What so f- having looked at the medieval history, what do we know about Osobrero in the Middle Ages? What was it like as the pilgrimage to Compostela surged in prominence? You know, as with most of these small places in the Middle Ages, there's not a lot of history that survives. Mm-hmm. Um, we really know the, only the bare bones about the, uh, the history of the place. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that um, uh, French monks established a monastery there mm-hmm. uh, sometime probably end of the 11th, beginning of the 12th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they, uh, this is what I was doing research on, <laughs> that history, and um, that gradually a little town grew up a- around it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they provided a hospice or a hospital. I mean, those words are kind of interchangeable in the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. uh, where sick people could stay or uh, healthy people could stay short periods, uh, sick people could stay uh, longer periods. And um, as I'm sure you know, it's one of the tough places on the Camino, uh, mm-hmm. the highest point after the Pyrenees before you get to uh, Santiago. Mm-hmm. And so it's a perfect place for there to be a kind of... Uh, uh, hospice for pilgrims, and of course there is still one there today. Mm. And you know, those who walk through a sombrero know it is a. It, it feels quite magical. You know, the payotas, the the stone structures with thatched roofs mm-hmm. are are yeah. the most provocative sight there. But the town itself is best known for a, a miracle and a legend, and I want to talk about those with you because they both originate in the Middle Ages. Uh, let's start with the miracle. What exactly do we know about the miracle Eucharist of Osobrero? Well, again, we don't know a lot about it. <laughs> um, the It's supposed to have occurred sometime around uh, the year 1300, mm-hmm. although none of the versions of the legend that I found had an exact uh, precise year for the miracle, which is suspicious in itself. Hmm. Uh, um, the miracle is as follows, that uh, a priest, a Catholic priest who was skeptical about transubstantiation, the sort of actual transformation of the bread and wine of the Eucharist into the body and blood of Christ, was uh, confronted by, you know, when he said Mass and uh, performed the ritual, that the blood and uh, bread transformed into actual blood, and, uh, flesh and blood. Mm-hmm. 
uh, and he was persuaded. Um, there's kind of two parts to that miracle. Um, there's uh, the chalice that is supposed to have been uh, the one in which the, the uh, wine was transformed, mm-hmm. that is uh, still on display. And uh, there's a statue of the Virgin Mary who is supposed to have leaned over in order to watch the miracle happen. Mm. And uh, that statue is still there, and it's kind of uh, a virgin and child perched at a kind of precarious <laughs> angle, uh, leaning forward. Um, now, both of, the, uh, th- both of those items are from the 12th century. Both of them um, are now in museums, and the, they're replicas in the church, in the actual church. Mm. Um, so, you know, so that's the, the bare bones of the legend. Uh, the first mention of it isn't actually until about 1500, hmm. uh, in 1486, uh, King, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella traveled to Santiago on the pilgrimage and stopped in Osobrero, which was then mostly an abandoned uh, town, mm. and heard about this miracle. And they seem to have supported its, uh, you know, its, its legitimacy and making it uh, wider spread. Hmm. Um, and I'll just say finally about the miracle that uh, the, the, the details are, are, again, suspiciously close to one that is supposed to have happened in central Italy in 1263. And the one in central Italy was kind of the uh, miracle that started the Corpus Christi celebration, which is a big Catholic festival across Mediterranean Europe, including uh, across Spain. Uh, It happened sort of in late May. And so I suppose it's a way, this legend is a way for this local place to participate uh, more profoundly mm. in this celebration that was getting going at the end of the Middle Ages. It's it's interesting to me because I th- I think I recall in your article that that occurred in Viterbo. Is that correct? Uh, Bolsena. Bolsena. That's so, right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Bolsena is is on the Via Francigena, the Pilgrim's Road to Rome, and uh, and it does seem like a lot of these uh, these miracle stories actually do circulate uh, along different routes in the same way that the hanged innocent story involving chickens in Santo Domingo de la Calzada <laughs> yeah. also goes back to Toulouse in France, that, that many of these seem to recur in, in different parts of the Catholic world. Absolutely. They, they were, in the Middle Ages, an important way by which this, these legends were spread were, mm-hmm. uh, you know, by, by pious pilgrims who would uh, recount... Um, incidents from one place to another and people would that would spark people's uh, imagination and uh, uh, they would think about similar things or hope that similar things had happened and so on yeah exactly yeah you mentioned before the the French monastery that was at the the center of your research and you you've you mentioned that there's this uh, a, a close relationship between Osobrero and French monastery and 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 a particular French nobleman named Gerald so how how does this connection between um, f- uh, a French monastery, a French nobleman, and this very small, isolated village in northwest Spain come about, and what's the nature of the relationship? Right. Um, well, that, that, that is what, what was at the heart of my research, mm-hmm. um, was that, uh, that story. Uh, Gerald uh, was a nobleman from Aurillac, which is in the Auvergne region of uh, central France, hmm. um, 
not far from Le Puy, which is another uh, mm. place on the, of course, famous place on the uh, pilgrimage routes through France. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he founded a monastery in the late 9th century. Within a century of that foundation, uh, he was being remembered as a saint locally at that monastery, and his reputation was spreading elsewhere. The monks were uh, successful at first, mm-hmm. and opening up churches across south, southern France uh, dedicated to St. Gerald, and um, his reputation was growing. Hmm. Now, so that would bring us to the sort of late 10th uh, century and into the 11th century, and that's right at the time when the Camino de Santiago was getting started. And the kings of Leon and Castile um, were encouraging French monks uh, from southern France, especially, to come down and establish, uh, they call them daughter houses, so smaller monasteries staffed by the French monks hmm. all along the road to, to uh, Santiago. Um, both because the population was smaller, there was, you know, the, these were areas that had just been uh, reclaimed in the Reconquista, mm-hmm. and so um, it was to encourage population to make them safer, to encourage the Christianization of the local peasant population, uh, and also to provide then uh, services to pilgrims uh, traveling the route. Um, I kind of wondered why then, why monks from Oriac would they go to Osabrero, but in fact, once I saw the place, hmm. the landscape around Osoprero looks remarkably like that around Oriac. Hmm. So this would have been a, just a really comfortable place hmm. for them to set up. This would have been exactly the kind of environment they were familiar with. Um, so uh, they, they established this monastery there. Um, it was probably always small. Um, uh, it, it still survives in, in the name of some of the local towns around Osobrero, some of the little uh, hamlets nearby. One is called uh, Linares, mm-hmm. and th- that name seems to have been derived from the uh, linen that was grown um, by the peasants to provide the monks with uh, sheets and things for the hospital. And another hamlet is called Ostidal, that's uh, <laughs> derived from, uh, again, uh, the, the, the hospice, the hospital that the monks had set up there. Hmm. Um, so uh, the monastery didn't, didn't survive. Um, by the time Ferdinand and Isabella visited the place in the 15th century, it was in ruins. Uh, but we don't have anything, any historical record to tell us where or exactly why it was abandoned. Um, but um, uh, the monks did, uh, you know, return to France at some point um, hmm. and left the place. This is kind of a strange notion, but the way you're describing monastic expansion almost sounds like franchising today, opening <laughs> franchises uh, of a business in another location. Uh, well, it's, it's, <laughs> there, there are definitely some parallels, that's for sure. Um, you know, in the Middle Ages, um, for a monastery to be successful it had to attract uh, pilgrims. It had to attract, um, you know, the faithful who would come and spread the name of the, of the shrine and offer donations mm-hmm. to it. I mean, those donations, uh, the donations from pilgrims in, and the donations from well-wishers, including of property, were the only way that these monasteries survived. Mm. So um, it, it was important for them to get... 
to get known, and having a monastery, even a small one on the Camino to Santiago, meant that you were going to get <laughs> mm. um, business, that you people were going to hear about you, know about you. Hmm. Uh, the monastery back in Oriac tried desperately to kind of create an alternative pilgrimage route that hmm. went through Oriac, but it's just not that easy to get to, and so... Um, the pilgrimage roads, you know, went uh, near to it, Le Puy and Moissac and so on, but didn't, none of the major ones ended up going through Oriac. Uh, and eventually, I think that's part of what brought about the decline of this particular monastery. The, the monastery at Oriac was closed in the 16th century. Mm. Uh, it simply just kind of ran out of funds, ran out of... Uh, people interested in uh, St. Gerald and keeping his uh, devotion going. And so uh, along the way, mm -hmm. the, these daughter houses like the one at El Sobrero were also abandoned. Um, some were sold off and so on. Hmm. I mentioned before that El Sobrero is, is known for a miracle and a legend. So let's talk about the legend now. And the legend holds that the Holy Grail was once located at El Sobrero. Where does this legend come from? Okay, well, uh, the short answer is no one knows. Um, but uh, part of the reason for my article was to speculate about a connection between that story, that history of the monastery and of St. Gerald that I was researching, and uh, the story of the Holy Grail at, at Ozoprero. And um, uh, so... Uh, in the Galician language, in Gallego, mm -hmm. uh, you would you would call St. Gerald, San Graal. Mm. Um, that's how he's known. And the how you would say Holy Grail in Gallego is San Graal. <laughs> and they're virtually identical <laughs> sounding. <laughs> uh, so, so my theory, and it's only speculation, but mm -hmm. um, is that the, you know, the church at Osobrero, which was once dedicated to St. Gerald, mm -hmm. was known as the home of San Grau, mm -hmm. and that as his reputation declined, as the monks went away, and as the local people sort of forgot the connection with St. Gerald in France, that, San, that when they thought of San Graal, they thought of the Holy Grail, <laughs> and having that 12th century chalice mm -hmm. already connected with uh, um, a miracle story um, helped to cement then uh, this notion of the Holy Grail uh, <laughs> being at Othobero. Um Now, unfortunately, again, it's all speculation because it, there's, there's nothing to support that sort of connection uh, in the mind. Um, the first historical instance I could find of the Holy Grail legend at Osobrero is from a 1928 poem by a Galician poet, Ramon mm -hmm. Cabanillas, who wrote in Galician um, uh, a story about the Holy Grail. Mm -hmm. He was very interested in Arthurian legends, and he basically wrote a series of poems that set many of the stories of the Arthurian legend in Galicia. Wow. Uh, the finding of Excalibur and Arthur going off to Avalon. So he, he, he was kind of, that was his own, um, his own interests. He was both very proud of his Galician uh, heritage. He, again, he was one of a sort of generation, new generation of writers mm -hmm. who were writing in Galician rather than writing in Spanish. 
Um, he was proud of the Celtic heritage mm-hmm. of Galicia uh, and wanted to sort of, um, I think, bring it home in a way. And there were circulating from the late 19th century on a number of legends that set the Holy Grail in Spain. Uh, the origin for that seems to have been uh, Richard Wagner's operas. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> that he was the first one. There's no medieval legend that sets the the Holy Grail in Spain, but he talked about it being in a place called Montsalvat in Spain, hmm. and that seems to have inspired uh, Galicians, and, and there are legends that pop up in the late 19th century about it being in Catalonia, outside Barcelona, in Valencia, uh, so... Uh, all over had kind of intrigued people. Arthurian legends were very popular in the late 19th century, and um, that Osobrero become uh, another uh, one of these uh, sites for the Holy Grail legend uh, hmm. to take place. It, it, it's kind of, uh, I don't know, it, some scholars have seen it as a kind of uh, symbolic. Mm-hmm. A uh, sense of the distinctive distinctiveness of the regions of Spain, each of them claiming this special heritage, and Galicia probably had the sort of best claim to a, the Celtic heritage and this Arthurian past mm-hmm. of any uh, part of Spain. Hmm. Well, I think I'll probably leave my shovel at home. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's not every day I get to talk to a medievalist, so I'm interested in your perspective on. Uh, contemporary outlooks on the Middle Ages. You know, I think when I think about myself uh, on Camino and when I think about many pilgrims on the Camino today, I think that the medieval feel of the way is a significant part of the appeal, but that's, you know, that's a modern reimagining of the medieval. It's not Mm -hmm. necessarily the medieval itself. Um, So I'm curious from your informed perspective, what is the persistent allure of the medieval in the modern world, and how do we tend to reimagine it when we think of the medieval? I always tell my students that uh, the Middle Ages is always both the good old days and the bad old days (laughs) rolled into one. Um, You just have to think about sort of medieval films, films set in the Middle Ages, uh, Braveheart, and Mm -hmm. so on. Um, to, to see that the Middle Ages is both, uh, we think of it both as a time of great violence, of uh, sort of numbing superstition, of class oppressions, gender oppressions. Um, so it can become the kind of receptacle for all of the worst elements of human nature. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, it can be uh, uh, the receptacle for uh, positive human emotions. Uh, people are attracted to um, despite the violence to the code of chivalry and the, and the idea that there are limits to violence. Mm. Uh, people think of the, the faith of the Middle Ages um, as inspiring sort of great, uh, great artistic and architectural feats and mm-hmm. great uh, um, uh, events. Uh, the, the, the orderliness of the Middle Ages, the respect for tradition, the respect for hierarchy. So I think from our modern perspective, we can impose upon the Middle Ages all kinds, a whole range <laughs> of human attributes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think um, maybe that doubleness that exists in the Middle Ages is part of what attracts 
modern pilgrims, mm. uh, religious or not, to the Camino de Santiago. Um, the uh, you know, People always talk. I certainly have known people who have walked the trail. People always talk about sort of uh, how harsh and how uh, tough it is, how um, it really takes... Uh, an amazing amount of energy and uh, dedication to do it. And I suppose that reminds people of what life was like before mm. the age of automobiles and mass transportation and so on. Um, and and just the, the struggle to remain, you know, sort of uh, hydrated and fed and so on uh, kind of mimics that those medieval everyday struggles. Mm. Uh, at the same time, maybe the, the positive side of the Middle Ages is there too, the sort of finding joy uh, in the simple things. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned in your podcasts, you know, the sort of the pleasures of, uh, you know, a, a, the full stomach at the end of the day mm-hmm. and of relaxing and putting your feet up and so on. Um, and uh, I, I suppose, uh, it, it, in a way, it's kind of, uh, this is, these are the opportunities that bring us close to the Middle Ages to see that, to have that kind of experience. A couple of days after talking with Brian, my copy of his book, Traveling Souls, Contemporary Pilgrimage Stories, ordered a couple of weeks earlier, finally arrived in my mailbox. It's not his fault. I blame Amazon. But I was happy to get it and to read through it and to realize that the answer to one of the questions that I asked him was actually right in the opening preface. I'm going to read a couple paragraphs from that. To be alone. In our age of package tours and multiplying travel magazines, pilgrims are independent types who desire some journey off the beaten path, something original, something meaningful. And yet pilgrimage is the ultimate package tour. In many cases, people have taken the same road for thousands of years. Pilgrims seldom do the road alone. Nor did I. Despite all my intentions to walk alone and contemplate life, I fell in with philandering British sea captains, snoring Swiss schoolteachers, Spanish bullfighters, reluctant Dutch retirees, Belgian prisoners, engineers, scholars, wonks, admin, New Age fakes, doctors, students. The pilgrim road is rowdy. And perhaps that is exactly what American pilgrims want. We've been so successful at insulating ourselves by living in our cul-de-sac developments and airtight autos and anonymous high-rises that we've cut ourselves off from all the wonderful strangers and surprises of the world. And something in that certainly rings true to me, that when I'm at home, I appreciate the comfort of isolation that I have built for myself. I do enjoy being alone. I do enjoy... um, separation and distance and uh, being able to go home at the end of the day and experience quiet. But I also know that the experience of pilgrimage has been a pivotal part of my reconnection with with humans, with uh, learning to be more open, with appreciating 
sharing space with strangers and the joy and occasional discomfort that that can bring. And I realize that it is in those connections, in that interconnectedness, that stories arise. And it's in the stories that our lived experiences go from something to exist solely in the moment to something that can stand the test of time. And so when I think about Brian's point about stories being a way for us to go home, to transition back, to re-enter and complete the journey, I, I, I see that. I, I see the truth in that. Uh, but I also see them as a way to um, almost extend the journey in a, in a fundamentally different way, not to bring closure, um, but to give it new life. Um, and so when I think about O Sobrero, I, I marvel at the fact that one of the things that makes O Sobrero such a dynamic place today is the stories that have been told before about it. Stories which may not have been true. Stories which may simply be uh, a, a, a case of plagiarism, borrowing or stealing wholeheartedly from uh, a legend that's more directly attributed to another site. And in the end, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if those legends have authenticity or not. What matters is that they have persisted to this day. It's like uh, a, a piece of medieval graffiti that has somehow become a historic relic in its own right, something that moved from an annoyance, from damage, to something that is to be remembered, that is remembered, because it has persisted. Um, and in that, I, I think we all can see the appeal, the appeal of permanence, of something lasting. And in the lasting heritage of the Camino, we are able to create experiences of our own that can also last. And there's a comfort in that, I think. That's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. I want to thank again Brian Bouldry for joining us from Northwestern University and Matt Kiefler from San Diego State University. I want to thank all of you for listening. It's, as I've said before, um, always a great satisfaction to know that people out there are listening and enjoying this. And uh, remember, if you want to be involved in helping me rewalk the Camino Frances, or if you want to be involved in any other way with the podcast, you can write me at CaminoPodcast at gmail.com. That's it for now. Take care. Enjoy the week.